Welcome back to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. In the summer of 2014, photos of a 100-foot-wide crater in northwest Siberia took the Internet by storm. What had created this huge and mysterious hole in the ground? Well, it was soon determined that the most likely culprit was climate change, that thawing permafrost had allowed a buildup of explosive methane gas that created the crater. Since then, several more of these permafrost craters have been identified. But now researchers at Woods Hole Research Center are launching a comprehensive search effort to see how common and widespread these craters are and learn more about them. Sue Natale is Woods Hole Research Center's Arctic Program Director, and Greg Fisk is a senior geospatial analyst there, and they join me now in our Woods Hole studio. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Heather. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. All right, Sue, let's go back five years to summer of 2014, and the first pictures of this crater emerged. And I remember it was just like this whirlwind of speculation. First of all, are the pictures even real? What on earth could have created this? Was this, you know, a meteor strike that we had missed? What was your first reaction when you heard about these craters or this one crater, I guess? Um, I was actually in Siberia when I heard about that one crater, but it had placed very distant from where the crater exploded. Um, I was surprised in disbelief. I actually wasn't quite sure that it was real and something that happened. I didn't know what to believe. I had limited information because I was at a remote field station. So I, I, it just seemed like a crazy thing. I, I honestly didn't know, think at the time I, that I believed it was actually happening. So clearly for this to be an impact of climate change was not something that you as an Arctic climate scientist were expecting. I didn't expect it then, and I still don't expect it now. Um, it's a, not something that any Arctic scientists talk about for this to happen on land, to have land explode because of a buildup of methane below the ground. It still surprises me now. Okay, so what do we know about the cause of, of this crater or, you know, there have been a handful of these found of these craters? Yeah, we still don't know that much, surprisingly. Um there's been about six to eight of them that have been identified for certain. And um, we know that they, over um, a couple, few years period, they start to build up like a hump in the ground. And then that lump, it looks like what um, people call a pingo, which is sort of a just a, a large hill in the ground in the Arctic that's usually filled with ice. Um, that hump explodes. It forms a very large hole in the ground. And then by the next year, that hole fill with water, and it can look like another lake. Hmm. Um, we know that the methane concentrations in these holes and then also in the water are very high. They've been measured a thousand times higher than atmospheric. So there's certainly methane that's building up underneath these. And um, we, it's likely that this is methane that is building up and being created because of the breakdown of organic matter that's underneath the ground. Um, these methane craters have been associated with warmer summers. So they seem to happen in these summers where there's been anomalously or after summers when there's anomalously high temperature. And they tend to be in places where there's kind of an ice cap. So the ice cap may be, you know, one possibility is that there's methane that's building up and you have these higher temperatures and you're increasing pressure and you have this ice that's underneath the ground and then it builds up enough that it explodes. Um, wow. But there's still mostly there's a lot that is not known about them, even, you know, where to find them, where the next ones are happening, just because there's so few of them that have been located. I mean, let's take one step back. Why would methane even build up as permafrost is is thawing and warming like that? So in, in these terrestrial landscapes, the methane that's 
that's coming out of the ground. There's organic matter that's in the ground, so that's soil that has a lot of carbon in it, and then that gets broken down. It can be released by microbes as carbon dioxide or methane. So in areas that are saturated, you're more likely to get methane produced and released. So that's the likely mechanism of this. There are other possibilities for how methane can be in the ground. I mean, there's methane that's fossil fuel methane, you know, that we're extracting um, that's very, very ancient. It was formed many, many years ago. Um, It seems like this methane is biogenic methane that's more recently formed. So, Greg Fisk, you're the the data and and maps guy for this uh, project. Mm Mm-hmm. Sue was saying there are six, seven, eight of these that have been identified so far. I mean, they, yeah. are they all in one region? Are they all across Siberia? Um, do, do we have a sense of, of how widespread this phenomenon might be? So um, what we're looking at is an area of the Yamal Peninsula, the central part of Siberia, and then just to the east, the Gaiden Peninsula. And so, so far, I think four of them have been found on Yamal Peninsula and two on the Gaiden Peninsula. Okay. Yep. So kind of a, a more restricted area, not trying to take on all of Siberia. Right. And right. so far, those have been identified from satellite imagery, right? So how different is the the data that you're trying to use or are going to be generating and using to, to you know, map these more broadly? So I think so far, these have actually been located on the, on the ground by the local residents. And what we're trying to do is that take that to next level, is to find out how many others may exist that aren't known. Um, if you can picture Siberia, it's a big place. Right. And the Yamal Peninsula itself is, is a very big place. Our proposed study extends about 850,000 square kilometers. So within that area, we're going to use some new open access geospatial data sets that we now have access to. And we now have the ability to, to data mine and to dig in these data sets and to explore for these types of features. So what kind of data are we talking about? I mean, how do you go search for, other than visually, how do you go search for a crater in Siberia? So the key data set in this analysis is going to be a new data set put out by the Polar Geospatial Center at the University of Minnesota. And that's a, a time series of elevation, of very high-resolution elevation data. And when I mean high-resolution, we're talking about two meters for the entire Pan-Arctic. Um, wow. Through recent joint project between the NGA, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and NSF, they were able to map uh, the entire Pan-Arctic using high-res stereoscopic satellite imagery to build an elevation data set. So what are you looking for? Are you actually looking for just a fully formed crater, essentially a place that looks deeper? Or are you looking for, over time, changes like Sue was describing, that kind of the buildup of the hill and then the collapse? Exactly. As Sue mentioned, these things kind of mound up just prior to their explosion from what we've read in the literature, what we learned from our colleagues in, in Russia. And so we're looking for that change from a flat surface to a bulbous surface to then a crater. And then these craters in this part of the world, of course, fill up quickly afterwards with water. So you're going from flat, vegetative land generally, to a, a bubble, to a crater, and then finally a new pond. And so you can actually trace that over yep. time with so we, this data set. With the, with the elevation data set. How yep. long do you expect that to take to kind of get a map of this area and get a sense of, of how many craters there might be there? So we've pictured this going through a, a series. In the first series, we analyze this elevation data set, and then we can start to roll in other filters, vegetation change data set, uh, to see if things gone from a vegetated area to water, for example, and then we can actually start to do some three-dimensional modeling as well because uh, you can picture a crater mounding up. It has this conal characteristic. We can detect that in this elevation data. And so we start applying all these filters, and we hopefully within a year's time or a couple of years' time at best um, have some kind of results. So these craters are uh, a surprising and bizarre phenomenon. Do they pose 
a, a risk to people? I mean, you, you mentioned that people found these. How many people are around there? Is there their infrastructure in the areas where these craters have been found? Yeah, so where these craters have been found is actually an area um, where there's a lot of gas and oil extraction. And so there is a lot of infrastructure. There are people because people are the identify these on the ground. Um, and one of the craters was actually quite close to um, a pipeline. So mm. there are risks from these craters, um, impacts on infrastructure, um, a lot of high economic costs and also potential costs to human populations. And the other exciting thing for me, uh, Heather, with this data sets, these data sets is that they're pan-Arctic. And so the methodology that we're working out here can be potentially applied any place. Right. So you're looking at one part of kind of northwestern Siberia with right. this initial study, but you could right. potentially broaden that out to, to the entire Arctic. Right. So you could have the west coast of Alaska, for for example, that's changing drastically as sea level rises and villages are actually sinking. We could apply the same data sets methodology there and then map change in, in that region. So areas where there could be more people, we could then demarcate those and, and work out those interactions. So, Sue Natale, as a climate scientist, I mean, once you've got a map of this area and some sense of how many of these craters are there, what does that tell you? I mean, if it turns out that there really are only half a dozen and they've already all been found, what does that say about our understanding of climate change or if there are 20 of them? I mean, the fact that these were unanticipated, you know, what what do we kind of do with that yeah, information? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's two ways to look at it. One of it is just like, what's its contribution to global carbon emissions? And that, if there's six of them, that may be low. Regardless... Um, this is a new process in our understanding of how the Earth system functions. And so for me, that alone is important. You know, we scientists keep having these surprises about climate change. And to me, this is another one of those surprises. Um, at the same time, if we only find six craters, while we're going through this methodology of mapping these craters, we're also going to be identifying other abrupt events. And um, there's a process called thermocarst, which is just when, you know, the ground essentially collapses because of permafrost thaw. It's a really important process in the Arctic, and it's really important for carbon emissions because when a thermocarst event happens, the ground thaws abruptly, much faster than the models are predicting. So we're going to be mapping these craters, but at the same time, we're going to be mapping other large disturbance events with this methodology. And so I feel like even if the craters themselves aren't this massive carbon emissions, regardless, it is a new change. It's not something that we expected. Um, and I and I do want to point out, I, this is a different process process than what people may have heard about methane clathrates, which are located usually in the deeper ocean. This is kind of a, I don't, it's a methane forms sort of a solid form. It, it forms under high pressure conditions in the deep ocean. Um, this is not what's happening on land. This is why this is such a surprise, because this is in an area where you just don't have the pressure for those methane clathrates to form. So, you know, just the idea that the the world is changing in a way that scientists never would have predicted, I think, alone is um, is a concern. Absolutely. It's a concern. I think it's also, though, something that has sometimes been weaponized against climate science to say, right, like, look, there, there are these things happening that climate scientists completely didn't even anticipate. Like, maybe we just have this whole thing kind of wrong. How do you put that into to perspective? Well, I mean, the reality is, you know, we've we've never been able to learn the system that we're in right now because it's never happened before. So it doesn't surprise me that we're 
there's changes that are happening in the Earth system that we didn't know because we've never experienced this rate of change. Um, the one thing I do notice is that when the climate scientists are wrong, we're generally wrong in the conservative end. You know, I mean, the ice sheets are melting faster than we expected. These are, these processes that are happening, you know, with permafrost that are happening faster than we expected. And so, um, you know, I, I, I would love to be wrong in the other direction, to be honest with you. Like, I would rather not have these processes, changes in the Earth system happen faster than we expected. But, you know, but this is what happens. Like, you know, for the most part, the climate scientists aren't wrong. There are just some changes that are happening that were unexpected that because we have never been in this place on this planet before. Do you think these are processes, especially when you're talking about these abrupt changes? I mean, that's one thing that's really emerged out of the science in the past few years is that climate change is not going to be this continuous change, you know, steady change in one direction that we seem to be seeing these abrupt jumps and changes. Is it possible to understand the system well enough to predict those? It's tricky. Um, but I'd say, yes, it is possible, but it's definitely challenging. And it's 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 possible to understand them. It's very challenging to get some of these abrupt processes into the models. And it's partly just because things are changing faster than the science can actually happen to keep up to it. And so incorporating some of these processes into the models, in a lot of cases, is not that scientists don't know that they're happening. It just takes time to, to get the processes right and to get the data that you need and to get them into the models themselves. Right. The difference between, okay, now we know that craters can form because thawing permafrost allows methane to build up and form craters is different than quantitatively being able to say, you know, there are six or 20 or 100 of these craters that are emitting this much greenhouse gases and, and put that into the model in a meaningful way. Right. Because one of the things we're we're hoping to do is as we find more, at least then we can identify what are the conditions under which a crater forms. Like we know it's been warmer years, but it's not everywhere, right? It's in certain places that they're forming. And so can we just even just by looking at the patterns across the landscape, take that as a starting point to gather more information to get a better understanding of where and why and when they may happen now and in the future? Well, best of luck with the project, and we'll call you back in a year to see what you've learned. <laughs> That's Sue Natale. She directs the Arctic program at Woods Hole Research Center, and Greg Fisk. He's a senior geospatial analyst there. They're working on a project to map permafrost craters in part of Siberia. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Until next week, this is Living Lab Radio. You can always connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab Radio is produced by WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH in Boston. It's produced by me, Elsa Partan, and Heather Goldstone is executive producer. Theme music by Stellwagen Symphonette.